0: Welcome to It Is What It Is, the podcast, with me, Danielle Bridge. On our show, we catch up with guests to talk about all sorts of things, including our job, mental health, relationships and basically everything that we humans experience as we navigate through life. This conversation is super important. It's a conversation about one of life's last taboos. Today Simon Blake and I talk about death and how it does and will affect all of us and what steps we can take to prepare for the end with dignity and compassion. I want to put in a couple of safety warnings in before you listen to this particular podcast because we talk about death. I understand that this is not going to be the experience of everybody and today's conversation is around death from cancer and it involves one person's frame of reference. The reason I wanted to have a conversation around this subject matter is to start having the conversation, nothing more or less, and I want to thank Simon for having it with me. Hello and welcome to another episode of Is What It Is, the podcast of me, Danielle Bridge. Today I have the most amazing guest on today. His name is Simon Blake, OBE, and the Chief Executive of the Mental Health First Aid England and Chair of the Dying Matters Campaign. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Excellent. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation, Simon. A bit anxious about it, if I'm honest, but um, I think that's the whole point of having these conversations is to break down these stigmas around conversations that we don't normally have, but that we need to have. So first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be the Simon that you are today? And that's a bit of a loaded question, but what brings you to your position today?
1: So... It's a very uh, uh, interesting question, isn't it? And uh, and who, who knows? But lots of brilliant people, lots of brilliant conversations and lovely parents, I guess, uh, and all sorts of things along the way. But I was supposed to be an educational psychologist from a work perspective, um, and I took a gap year between doing my undergrad and going back to do... The, um, the the qualifying part of it because I fell in love um, and chased love and it all went belly up. But, you know, that's a whole different story. Twenty five <laughs> years later the time was obviously devastating. Um, and I got a job as a sex educator um, uh, running a sex education program for boys and young men. Then uh, became expert because no one else was doing it. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and then worked in sexual health and volatile substance abuse and drug education for uh, sort of six, seven years and then ran Sexual Health Charity um, Brook before going to the National Union of Students, before coming to Mental Health First Aid England. So that's the, the work journey, um which all of it accidental, most of it glorious, um and 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 you know some brilliant people um along the way. Um, as a as a person, um I grew up in Cornwall uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um I uh, grew up knowing from a fairly early age that I was Um, different but not having the word for gay Um, and also I think I was I was into horse riding um, which obviously if you're a boy in the 70s and 80s isn't a thing to do a local farmer down the road lent me a pony and I self-taught and uh, yeah it was brilliant but it meant that I would often find myself in the playground with the other people who were you know not not the cool kids Um, and actually not the cool kids of course are the more interesting uh, ones (laughs) often um, and probably you know that's where we all learned to stick up for the underdog a mm. little bit so you know just thinking about linking that difficult conversations you know what is your understanding of the world um, what gives you a p- passionate and compassionate and social justice um, lens And I, and I'm pretty sure that really all started there and I guess Just the final thing to say is again, completely by accident, my work experience um, at my primary school, we had what was called the special unit and it was a unit for um, children with Down syndrome. And I did my work experience um, there and and I learned in that two weeks, um, mostly about discrimination and prejudice that people face as we walked through the town, as we went on a school trip, as parents talked about their fears, and um, for their children and for their hopes and again i think that was a really formative uh sort of experience because it meant i went on to volunteer and uh and ultimately to have something useful on my cv when i bounced back from falling in love and found i needed to find a job so <laughs> yeah, so that was a yeah very definitely an important part of the entry into into the voluntary sector and social justice issues
0: wow so you were pretty young you were pretty and you know you were talking and it reminds me very much of my daughter at the moment she's an amazing powerhouse of social justice and wanting everything to be fair and picking up on those differences and the way in which people are treated and oh yeah discrimination you know and injustice and it's amazing from my point of view as a parent how to nourish that, nurture that and make sure that she keeps as safe as she can be, you know, whilst exploring these things, but also encouraging her to, to be completely true to herself and to push for that, right? Because she might be the future you in terms of going down that route and finding her way and helping in terms of social service, and it's fascinating to hear that you were that young and also had a voice that was that strong at the time, recognizing it. Because I, I, I don't know whether or not, like I said with my daughter, I think it happens, but is that is that a, a thing? Do you know what I mean? Is it a thing, or is it kind of like extraordinary?
1: I, I, I guess, yeah, it, yeah. I don't, I don't know about know yeah, What drives your daughter but you know a huge amount of things around uh, uh, gender inequality, racial inequality, if you have lived experiences I didn't have the words for it but I think knowing that there are people who don't like you or don't want you to have a space or a voice because of who you are without even knowing who you are Mm. uh, I think just gives you that sense of injustice and if you experience injustice I think you're more likely to want justice and when you talk to children yeah, you know, that bit they may not call it justice but they want things to be fair mm. they don't want people to be picked on. they know when a teacher isn't doing what they believe is the right thing to do and you know and and yeah you know, I grew up with an older an older brother who we'll talk about um a bit later and I just remember going to my parents all the time it's not fair he does this <laughs> it's not fair. he does yeah. that and Mum are going life isn't always fair absolutely it's, 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 Sometimes you'll have to do this. But it was always about fairness. Um, and actually, they were being fair. It's just my uh, perception you know, of it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> actually, but most of the time being pretty pretty fair. But I, I do think that yeah, the bit which I think is really important in what you just said is how do you nourish it? And also, how do we help people to look after themselves? Because I think it's so easy to uh to either ignore things or to get angry about things mm. rather than work out how to change things and you know, for me you know, all of the work and all of the job that you know will be being done far after uh yeah i i died i'm sure is around you know what what is it going to take to make things better mm.
0: what is it going to
1: take to to change things so that people have the freedom and the opportunity to to be brilliant, whatever being brilliant means, and you know whether that's about uh, um, economic justice, whether it's about racial justice, whether that's about mental health as a social justice issue, you know how how do we keep on perpetuating the inequalities? Has to be a question that we that we really uh, tackle and answer, and work out how to create a fairer, more equitable society because too many people don't get the first chance you know, to have a. That's that's the challenge.
0: Absolutely, yes. I'm working in this sector. You see this day in day out, and it's difficult to try and stay positive and and hopeful. Um, you know, it is a, it's a tough a tough ask. But we do we do what we do. Um, as I as I thought, this is this would happen. This conversation has gone completely off topic. Um, but I've got you on today to talk about something very specific, Simon. Um, and it is around the subject of death being the last taboo. I've had conversations with people about death for a long time. I'm very open with my family about talking about it. We don't shy away from it. We don't push it under the carpet. We tackle these as scary as it can be into having those conversations. um, It's something that needs to be had. So you are the chair of the Dying Matters campaign. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So I'm very recently um, chair of Dying Matters campaign. So anybody who's listening from the Dying Matters campaign, apologies if I get any of this wrong (laughs) or talk out of turn. Just blame it on the newness. But the campaign is about trying to encourage conversations. It's not trying to dictate what those conversations are, but believing that society will be richer if we learn to, uh, talk to each other, to talk about death, to console each other, to understand, to think, to plan, um and to just uh you know, to recreate, I think, what was um you know perhaps a stronger wisdom. Yeah, you know, we if you think about uh, our mortality and, and, and um and death and, and our experiences of it, it's changed dramatically over the last hundred years. Um, and I think it was much more commonplace to know and to understand and to have experience and to talk about those experiences you know, not so long ago. And it's how do we how do we make sure that we rebalance and, and create that wisdom um, again? Um, and I became uh, the chair um, of Dying Matters. My brother died um, six years ago, just over six years ago. Um, and at that time, um, yeah it was it was very quick very unexpected and shocking actually when you you know, he was 45 i was uh, 41 um and 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 i was looking for places to understand it and to um to to make sense of this experience which was completely um came came left field and and knocked me you know com- completely for a while and couldn't really find very much um, and then when you start talking to other people, you realise, oh, I'm not the only one. So mm-hmm. for the second time in my life, you know, when I was growing up with gay, I thought I was the only one. And then when I had the sibling that died, I thought I was the only one. Turns out yeah, that we we have these experiences. We just often don't talk about them. So we, um, with Julie Bentley, um, who's the chief executive of the Samaritans, who'd also experienced the death of her brother, we set about creating an edited collection um, to bring stories together um called sisters and brothers um and um and and twelve people um just shared their experiences um, and that led me into conversations and into uh to this role um ultimately and 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 i think what's so important about just that that it that experience was it started with me saying i think that we need to tell the stories and then as we created um, uh, the book and realised that lots of other people also felt like they wanted to share their stories but in sharing our stories it was also cathartic because mm. those stories hadn't been told before. And then my mum um, died on uh, December 31st last year and we knew for a short amount of time that she was going to die but again it was that bit of actually real, you know, in the, in the first instance I, I've got no idea uh what to do here. I immediately moved home and, and lived with with um mum and dad until mum died and a couple of months afterwards and you know COVID for all of its awfulness created an environment made mm, that possible mm. for me to continue working. But when I, I very quickly um you yeah, know wrote a blog about uh the diagnosis and then two or three um along the way and Partly that was because as people shared their stories with me, I learnt and I understood and I was able to help make the final chapter for mum you know, a really positive one as much as um, as it possibly could be. And again, learning from that, that if we, there's so much experience, there's so much wisdom and we will only experience this very, um, with, with parents or with siblings a very small number of times. And actually, if we don't talk about it, then we hold energy and emotion inside us, which is probably better out. Outside, um, yeah. And also that we help other people to do better because, uh, yeah, that's ultimately, you know, what we're to do, isn't it? To do the, the, the endings better, the grieving better in order that we, you know, Because the truth is, it's going to happen to all of us.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's the bit, isn't it? The
1: funny truth.
0: Yeah, it's going to happen to every single one of us. It's interesting because talking about books, I read a book um, called The End Is Near by Dr Catherine Mannix. And it was life changing for me. And it's quite fascinating because I'm from a West Indian background and we view death very differently in the West Indies than we do here. Whereas over here, if we're ill, if we're sick, you know, it's immediately getting the NHS involved, going to the hospital, getting a diagnosis, you know, save, 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 save. And I think that that might have something to do with the way in which we view things now in terms of death, perhaps. But um, that book was really life changing for me because it made me realise that there are things that we can do. There are conversations that we can have uh, with those that are nearest and dearest to make sure that at the end... They get what it is that they want and they die a good death. And when I start talking about this, obviously on, on mental health first aid training or anything else kind of training that it is that I deliver, we have these conversations because people, the people are still scared of it, you know, they're still scared. And it is about having those conversations and breaking down stigma and opening dialogue, etc., etc. And it was a fascinating book, absolutely fascinating to the point where. I shared it with a number of people, including colleagues, and said, "Look, I know, guys, it's it's hard, but there's some tips in there. You know, she gives you tips. I.e., now you finish reading this page, go and speak to somebody, or write a letter, or something you can do so you don't feel as hopeless, perhaps, in that process."
1: Yeah, and 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 yeah, Catherine Mannix um, was instrumental actually in helping me to understand what we need to do with Mum. There's a, a two and a half minute clip which everybody should watch um, which is the BBC's In My Honest Opinion and it's about reclaiming and understanding about death by Dr Catherine Mannix and it was in that that I realised that I'd never thought about dying as a process. Mm. I thought about it was a horrific event Absolutely. Yeah, and, 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 and so you yeah, mm. my early years was very much around HIV you know and people dying too young mm. and because of oppression and discrimination, so that had been, you know, sort of big, or friend, you know, through suicide or car crash, you know, and, and actually this was a very different bit, which is, you know, it's, she described it as being a bit like giving birth, you know, that people will sleep more, and, 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 and of course that just gives you a whole different perspective, Mm -hmm. and I, I think you're, you're right, we mustn't, um, only understand death through a very western, uh, don't talk about it uh, uh, sort of lens, because you know in in different cultures and um, faiths and traditions mm. you know, uh, around uh, the world, um there are cultures and faiths that are much better uh, than you know a a white western uh, uh model of of death you we know, just sharing the stories. I know a friend who's from Cameroon who just said you know, the first time that they went to a funeral in 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 England. That just felt like everyone was suppressing yes. everything. They were used to loud, noisy, you know, yeah. experiences, and and it, and it impacted her her experience of grief. Mm. And and I think, you know, that that expression of emotion and those conversations. And I know with with mum, um, yeah, we planned her um, her cremation, and and it felt good because I knew when we were doing it, you know, however awful it felt that, you know, so we had the wedding, their wedding song, which dad and I would never have thought about, hey, I wasn't there. And, and 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 yet knowing that that was the one thing which mum wanted, we could hang everything else around it. And I'm not one for thinking, oh, your mum would have loved. You know, oh, yes. I, I'm sort of like, actually, this is us now. Um, but I am one for realising that actually... Thinking about what Mum would have loved and understanding what she would have hoped for gives you hope at the point at which you need it. And we both know, you yeah, know, that grief, you yeah, uh, know, uh, distress, emotional distress, mental health. Hope is a really important Absolutely. thing. It's, it's one of those things that keeps you bouncing back. And that's why I think the conversations are so important. You know, to get the the, the warm, the warmth that you get from understanding that you're doing the right thing. You mm. know? inverted commas if um, yeah if if he was writing it so yeah I think it's I think it, it, there's so much that we can learn and uh, and and so much that we can understand from cultures and traditions which which just yeah are much more emotional yeah yeah,
0: yeah see more... a West Indian funeral is something to behold I mean you know music singing, bright colours, a celebration of life, you know, the tradition that if it rains it's good luck, lots of people throwing dirt in and, you know, wailing, it's it's, an, it's a cathartic showing of emotion and I've been to funerals and when I was very young and in fact we lost um, somebody in, in my husband's family uh, years ago, my children are 13 and 11 now, so they must have been about six and seven and we took them to the funeral, they were the only children there and you know, people were asking us why we took our children to this funeral. I said, "Well, because that's their family, and you know, they want to say goodbye." And they didn't know them, you know. <laughs> but it was this whole process of somebody lives and somebody, and they are loved, and then they die, and you go and you say goodbye. It's a process, but people didn't bring their children, and and I found it really weird that they didn't bring them. But they also found it very weird that I did. So there was this kind of cross crossover of culture um where we again have to have these things open and it's I remember the dialogue that we had was oh well it's scary to them you know it might scare them and I was like well death is going to happen and if they can't be exposed to these things that are a guarantee then how do they build up a resilience to -hmm. be able to have these conversations and to talk about that right so it was quite Mm -hmm. it's quite interesting about taking our kids to that funeral as well you know what we got back from that
1: Yeah, and and, and just two things which really resonated there. So my mum and dad at my brother's funeral, um, you know, were howling. And, Mm. you know, I mean, I guess if I was um, more trendy, people would call it ugly crying. And and, 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 and desperate, desperate, visceral pain. Um, And it was really important. But people were scared by Mm. that. So people commented and I was just like, you don't have to say anything you can't make it better you you don't have to not say something because what you say is not going to make that pain they just need to know that you're there so yeah. just put the shoulder you know just hand on the shoulder whatever it is but it is interesting how how difficult you know people you know found um some of that and how you know if, if you if you don't express emotion you're being brave and yes. and and that seemed to be powerful and and i we had my mum's um ashes and and so she died during covid and so we we didn't ha- we had nine months um before we were able to have a celebration where there were more people there um and a my great um nephew uh went to the scattering of the ashes and rearranged the roses yeah you know, and, and it was Excellent. beautiful you know. yeah yeah you know, you know, granny his view granny's a star you know at night time. And, and 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 just has a different sense. So we mustn't put an adult lens onto mm. children's understanding. It's letting them experience it. But also when I, I did the um this speech a few people afterwards, I don't know how you did that and so brave and I was like, Well, you know, inside, you know, my heart's hurting and you know, I cried before here and I will cry yeah you know, this evening. But in that moment I had you know, something to do and, and actually it doesn't make me better or worse because I managed to do it without crying it just means in that moment mm-hmm. there was something that I could do and tomorrow I may not have been able to so there is all sorts of peculiar things that we attach to emotions lack of emotion or or expression of emotion of course because mm-hmm. the emotions the emotions are there
0: yeah and um, you, it's interesting you mentioned that about you know being brave I, I don't think <laughs> brave has anything to do with it it's a matter of getting through a process that you have have promised or you have said that you will do and it's painful and it it, again it comes comes back to the whole stigma mental health thing about not wanting to show any weakness or even in death you know which is one of the most devastating emotions that we can all go through guaranteed we are going to feel it but even in that, you know, to try and have that stiff, stiff upper lip and try and get through it without, it's just alien to me. You know, it's, it's, and I, me and my mum joke about it. it's probably really quite terrible, but we do laugh about it. She, you know, I said to my mum, you know, when you die, I don't think I'm going to be able to cope. And she says, well, of course you'll cope because you've got my grandchildren to look after and it's going to happen. And so you just kind of got to get over it, you know. Um, It's not very good for somebody who lives with a bit of anxiety, but (laughs) because it's that whole thing about what if, and it's not what if, it's when. Mm. And I think that's kind of a little bit different as well, right? So it's having those conversations about something and making sure that you've done everything that you need to do correctly so you don't get it wrong. And also another thing, you don't have to think about it. Because mm. I think the planning of death means then that when the time comes, you don't have to think for that person and then have the anxiety around it about getting it wrong. Like I like mentioned earlier on, you know, your mum would have been proud. This is what we planned. This is what she wanted. And therefore, I'm OK with that rather than, oh, gosh, well, what flowers do I want? Or do is it a burial or is it a cremation? At, you know, while you're in that mourning process. So the planning mm. does make a difference.
1: I think it does, and, and I was reading a book uh, called um, "We All Know How This Ends," uh, which around grief and and dying um, on holiday. Yeah, it's a, a good conversation starts around the pool uh, <laughs> in August. Interestingly, of course, because everyone's in. Because this is is it. I uh, hadn't planned so, but everyone was intrigued why I was reading it, but actually then wanted to have the conversation. Mm. But I think yeah, the, the the key bit, which is really uh important in all of this is that we only make sense of living through the fact that we're going to die our whole experience of living would be very different if we were immortal and actually when mum was diagnosed with cancer as we walked out and they said you know there's months um uh, not years um mum was like well the only thing they could have said worse is you're going to live forever and (laughs) you know in that moment it was just like yeah yeah as much as as they don't want that limit on it yeah that and it was an important reframing of you know what what was what was due to happen in that moment but i again i was talking to somebody on saturday and we were just who'd also recently experienced um bereavement it's like this really weird thing which we've got to do which is to um to make sure we're living for now to make sure that you're planning for a future, to say what you need to to say and to make sure you've got the joy, whilst also not feeling as though, you know, all the time you, you're just looking behind you thinking, is mm. is death on on my door. Um and but it but it it was very interesting having and I, and I think just to Sort of the points is within my brother not having the chance, not expecting, and not having the chance to to do any any anything to prepare. Your know, grieving was very different, but with mum, you know, instead of the stories being told when she was dead, we did a memory book for when she was alive and got everyone to do that. And 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 how we can build some of those sort of rituals into. Yeah, you know, our our celebrations, whether that's birthdays or Eid or Christmas or whatever it is, is is actually let's let's instead of worrying about the fact that the shops aren't going to have any toys that yeah you know, for this holiday season, let's just start thinking about how can we how can we create the joy and the emotional connection and make sure people know they're loved while mm. they're alive because that's good for them and good for us.
0: Absolutely, I love that. I love the fact that I don't know about you, but I think. COVID, certainly for us, and I know obviously you're going through something very, very different. We were locked down, family four, and my mum next door, which was lovely, having her so close and safe. And realising that ultimately this is it, right? (laughs) This is what we've got. We can't go and do these other things. We've got to learn to live with one another in very close proximity. And we did. And we did a really, really, really good job. And actually, I realised that I love my family so much more you know d- deeply and you, you, you kind of you know this you know people do know this but when you've actually got nothing but time <laughs> to think about how deep yeah. that means you know that is it's it's an amazing thing and I, I I'm totally in agreement with you in terms of looking at our family units and thinking about them you know in that depth of love and showing them that depth of love while we while we can
1: yeah no, absolutely and it's and it's and in that of course it's thinking about and and sometimes our family units are chosen family and sometimes that's they're funny. blood family mm. and sometimes they're all sorts of mixes of that but yeah, uh, uh, those relationships those connections you know are are the things which, which nourish us and keep us you know uh, uh, living a good life and actually that's what I was going to say they were saying about we all know how this ends they said there's no such thing as a good death but there is a good life till the last minute
0: and oh. uh,
1: yeah, you know, if you could if you could have had one sentence on the front of the book, yeah, that would have been the one. And of course that's absolutely absolutely true. You know, we've we've got all the time in the world until it's gone. Yeah. yeah. And and actually that's the the sort of bit which, you know, our planning, our conversations, our thoughts, our letting people know that we love them and we need them and all those sorts of things are so important. Um, and you talked about vulnerability earlier. We are vulnerable. We're humans. Yeah, we're, we're strong until we're broken. <laughs> we're doing well until we're not. Until
0: we're not. Yeah, yet. very, very true. You're listening to It Is What It Is, the podcast. We hope you're enjoying this episode as we strive to bring you interesting conversations about the things that really matter. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe. But for now, let's get back to that conversation. So just to take it back to the beginning of this conversation when you talked about working in schools and in education and like I said before I've got two children aged 13 and 11 they come back and tell me all sorts of things about the uh, the new curriculum and they've got um you know P- PD. I think it is personal development and all of these other things that schools are now adopting because they realize that these young people need a wider uh, educational standpoint what do you think of teaching about death at school like if it's something that perhaps parents or like you said earlier on chosen families or carers etc are unable to do for whatever reason would a school environment be the right place to start having these conversations do you think
1: so absolutely yes i think they're unavoidable um when i was doing sociology a level i think we called it the hidden curriculum when i was (laughs) doing PSHE. Uh, personal social health education, um, work at the National Children's Bureau, we would call it the planned curriculum around personal social issues. Um, yeah, but but the reality is, if you have got that many children in school, um, there are going to be children who um, have got somebody dying. It mm. may be a sibling, it may be a parent, it may be an aunt or uncle, it'll be a granny and granddad, and a five-year-old isn't going to say, I'm sorry, we don't talk about that at school, yeah. we only talk about that at home. Um, but an eight-year-old may learn that you don't talk about that at school and suppress it and not be able to talk about it at home um, as well and so yeah for for me it isn't this question about whether we teach about same-sex relationships or death or sex or or drugs it's like as part of a patchwork of children's education uh, they should always be you know able to learn about have conversations you know I grew up in Cornwall and we did rural science so we learned about death through animals dying um, I don't think rural science is on any curriculum <laughs> now but you know whether it is a pet or whether it's the school pet or but well, yeah you know, and, and to not talk about that is actually irresponsible mm. because you know as, as you said right at the beginning you know that that for children we need to understand death and dying through their lens not through an adult lens um, and sometimes it will be really, really painful and traumatic, and sometimes it will be you know, just uh, not understood fully yeah. and, and will need comprehension. I guess the bit which I don't understand, and this is the same for all of it, is we don't make something happen by talking about it. We don't corrupt minds by talking about things. We just help people to understand the things that will happen yeah you know, and, and 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 we seem to have a history of thinking that children and young people can't absorb information and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child which we signed in 1989 um you know is about involving children in education services and decisions that affect them in ways which is proportional to their age mm. and that's the important bit and and just to remember that you know if that we don't need to go into huge amounts of death depth about something <laughs> yeah. we just need to talk about it and if they've got more questions they'll ask more questions and i'm sure you've done it where your child or children have asked you something and you've given them the answer yeah 101 <laughs> on whatever it is and they're like, no i didn't mean that i just <laughs> meant, can i go to the shop so what, whatever it is and, and, and it's complete misunderstanding because we've seen it through an adult lens and and that that's not it so just that bit of just age people call it age appropriate just gently mm. you know, talking and allowing inquisitiveness.
0: Yeah. Do you know what? You hit the nail on the head there. I remember having conversations with my children about sex because at school they talk about everything but sex, if that makes any sense. so They kind of go around the edge, which is absolutely fine because it is age appropriate. But Sebastian asking me something and I told him and... I told my friends about it and they were like, oh my God, how did you tell him in the, with a straight face? I said, because it was a question that he had and there was no bias around it. There was no emotion attached to it and I didn't feel weird about it because it was a very scientific question that he asked. And I answered him in a very scientific way rather than loading it with this, oh, I you know, kind of thing around it, which where's where the embarrassment and the stigma and all of that stuff comes from. So I found it to be quite interesting that we can have these conversations quite directly. And also just going back to something you said, I teach, my, my business teaches physical and mental health first aid, as you know, with you guys, but um, the physical first aid part of the business is very fascinating because we get asked to go into schools and teach about life-saving skills. So CPR, so we'll talk to year fives and six about cpr which ultimately happens simon if somebody's dead yeah right so you do cpr if somebody's stop breathing clinically dead and yet even in those situations death isn't spoken about it's all about the act of saving that life and doing what you can to bring them back with no emphasis around the fact that even if i do this out of hospital cardiac arrests are very 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 low in terms of you know their outcomes so we are we have to talk about death in talking about life you know so i'd be i'd be asked to talk about it in schools go in and teach about first aid but don't talk about death or you know we kind of have to you know um put circles around that and not really touch upon that so it's quite interesting what schools are almost encouraging you to do but what they're not doing on the other hand
1: and and i just as you were talking then i was thinking uh, when i did life saving training uh uh and Wenton and was a lifeguard um, in America um, before I uh, fell in love and went off again. To <laughs> was, a, uh, was, was a lifeguard in America. Nobody at any point in time mentioned the fact that actually doing that job and trying to save lives might have mm-hmm. meant that there was death mm-hmm. and that in that instance you would you know, cover them or mm-hmm. you know, need support or whatever. You know, just. Nothing, as far as I can tell, a sort of, sort of slight shiver down at my back, actually, at the mm. fact that something could have happened that I would have been really ill-prepared for. You know, I was yeah. 18, 19 years old, being prepared to save the life, but not being prepared to manage end. what might have happened if I wasn't able to, which often yeah, may That's, be the case.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting because on the physical stuff, there is a part of the end, which is called the aftermath, when you've done something quite traumatic, it might be CPR, it might be severe blood loss or something like that then go and speak about it. And it's fascinating to me because I've been delivering physical first aid training for 16 years. In the very beginning of my career of doing that, I remember saying at the end, you know, if you have to deal with something which requires CPR or somebody might lose their life, then you need to talk about it, you know, because it's that bit there that's going to cause the issue. Obviously, years later and doing mental health first aid, that's the whole bit, right, about talking about it and just going through those processes to be able to, to offload all of those emotions which are quite normal after dealing with something quite traumatic. And I've been on a number of first aid courses, as you can imagine, over the years, and it's never discussed. And I'm like, how can we miss that bit out, right? You know, we these chances of people surviving are really low, which means that, like you said, somebody might end up having to sit there with somebody who doesn't make it. What do we do then? You know, we have to talk about the possibility of that happening with all of yeah. the pain that goes along with it, right? So Yeah, So interesting very interesting all right so a couple of questions and then i will leave you but the first one is and it's a big question how do you think i think we've probably touched upon it but you know in in a couple of sentences perhaps but how do you think that we can navigate this this absolutely going to happen life event with a greater understanding on a bigger scale. So I know we talked about it from a school point of view. Perhaps is that it? Is there a, you know, the Dying Matters campaign? I never heard of it, Simon, until I saw you on LinkedIn. So, you know, how can we start to encourage these bigger conversations for our society?
1: Well, so one of them is to sign up to Dying Matters campaign and we'll make sure that all the information is in the in this information with the podcast. But I think, one so when um, my... Uh, when we found out my mum was dying, a friend whose dad had died the year before wrote me a letter and she said, I'm going to write everything that I wish that I'd known um, before my dad um, was before we had to look after dad. And and it was just one of those where I was like, I never have thought of that. I've never have thought of that. I'd never have thought of that. So there is something about leaning into it. So rather than just going, I'm really sorry to think, is there anything that I know that I can share you know in terms of wisdom and and you know some so that was um uh, one Sally was the first person did in a letter, but various people at different times said you know these are some of the things you know that I learned and 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 for you to think, and just sharing that wisdom um the second is 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 absolutely um not allowing ourselves to not be uh, to, to be silent about it, and I think Yeah, workplaces, uh, for example, as I said, you know, I was really, yeah, because of COVID, I was able to continue working and to be with my mum at the point at which we know somebody's been bereaved or we know that somebody um, is is close to the family's um, got terminal illness, um, to talk about how can we make this best work? How can we think about work and you and what you need and have the space? You know, the, the idea that you have the five days off Ugh. immediately if somebody died and then the funeral that's based on the funeral being within a week and then you go back yeah the day after yeah it just is not how the world works it's not how we work as as humans so I think that that re- managerial response is actually also a really important um, one and I would you yeah, know very very quickly be talking about what can we do you know if, if people are in those socials in a way which I'd never have known have done before so I think there's lots that we can do um, around that but also we self-censor don't we and you know I am a person who probably talks um, more than most um, because (laughs) uh, of you know the the passion that we should do things differently Mm. but there are times when I'm like oh if I say that my brother and my mum has died then the people think there's something wrong with me and that thought goes into my mind and I'm like Get rid of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's ridiculous, and and they're able to do that. But also, then you know, people are going to think I'm such a bore if I talk about it. And similarly, we worry we're going to upset people if we ask them a question. You know, and so I think it's just making it part. And and perhaps you know, to your point around the um, you know West Indian uh, tradition of being more um, celebratory. You know, being more um, uh, understanding that actually. Yeah, we we continue. We always ca- we will carry people in our hearts, but we carry them more effectively in our hearts if we if we process the joy and mm-hmm. um, as well as the pain. And I think sometimes people will talk about the pain before the joy, or not even talk about the joy um, at all. And um, and one of the things I really learned from Mum and Dad was you know, actually creating new traditions. So we had you know, we would always talk about Andrew before. Um, lunch on christmas day we would phone first thing in the morning on his birthday and you know and, and dad and i now have you know a few traditions which we're we're building up and i think that's all part of creating a more literate society for one of a better um uh, were better sort of um term around it so sharing our wisdom sharing our joy ex- accepting that there is there is pain, but that that pain is not diminished it, by not talking about it um thinking about workplaces, thinking about schools and sharing you know so as much you know if I get when I'm in a situation where um I understand that San pass on writing that letter, uh, yeah, and the letter said things like buy in meals, get a gardener if you can afford it, you know don't spend time doing things and worrying about whether the house is clean, Tell people what you want. Um, from them. Make sure that you say everything today, because tomorrow may not be that. Yeah. You know, so all things which you know, I'd never thought about buying in uh, ready meals, so that the minute that uh, Dad was hungry or something, I could just make you know, a, a ready meal. And of mm. course, yeah, there is a there is an economic privilege which we have with some of that. Yeah, you know, and I, I recognise that. But also, yeah, you know, we had friends who sent us um, dinners, and and I've done the same. Yeah, you know, into other families um, now that we're experiencing things because it just Yeah, it's sharing the
0: load, sharing the load. And that's fascinating you say that because at the beginning of life, you know, when people have babies, that is exactly the same process of which we ask for support. You know, people will take your support. You're tired. You haven't slept. You've got this brand new baby. You can't cook. The baby's hanging off you (laughs) and you can't do anything, you know. So that whole process of reaching out, looking at community, looking at support and not seeing that as a weakness in any way, shape or form, because it will help us grow as a society. I love that. I think that's really, really powerful.
1: And I think the bit, and this is, a, you know, so, so often we ask people, tell people to ask for help when they need it. Mm. I think we've got to get better at just knowing and, yes. and giving. And, and just saying, you know, using that knowledge, you know, you're going to be tired. Yeah, cleaning is the last thing you're going to do. We'll, we'll come in and help you do that. What shopping, yeah, we're going to bring you a shopping hamper because all of us, you know, learn that asking for help um, is is not the best thing, particularly outside your immediate family, mm. certainly. And so we've got to change that culture and just go, right, we're going to give it. We know that this is a tough time. Let's just do it. And if you get it wrong, say what? Absolutely. You did it with good intention. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Simon, that's absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Some really tangible things to do as well you know some practical tips there for people that might be listening to this that are navigating these times and i know we talked about the dying matters campaign can you tell people where they can find information about this we will put it in the podcast notes but just in case that'd be great
1: so um dying matters um website um and
0: uh i don't know who you are it's okay we'll the pop podcast. it in the podcast no no he did say you did say you're relatively new i'll let you off so we'll put that information in there
1: but uh yeah, if you if you Google um, Dying Matters uh UK, uh, the information um will come up there. Um, also again to say, yeah, Catherine Mannix, um mm. anything um, Dr. Catherine Mannix has written, um I would wholly recommend um, that and also the, the BBC's in my honest opinion, um yeah, video um is the best two and a half minutes that I think you could ever spend. Um, thinking about it um, in my humble opinion (laughs) 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 Um, but yeah I think I think the 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 key thing about all of this is you just go right back to the start isn't it is about finding the places not being afraid to look for knowledge asking the questions and, and and just making sure that we have conversations
0: absolutely thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure
1: You've been listening to the It Is What It Is podcast, presented by Daniel Bridge and produced by Defresh Productions.